doing? Uh, a podcast. What's it called? The What Happened. Podcast. Whoa. <laughs> What's on this podcast? Whoa. What do we What do we do here? I mean, we talk about stuff that happened in the past. Hence the word. What happened? So it's history podcast. Uh, it's like some crazy stuff too. You know? So it's, it's not your boring history, like hardcore history. No, no. And also, we're not just like monotone talking the entire time. Cool. You asked. <laughs> uh, yeah, welcome back, folks, to the What Happened podcast. I'm glad you're here. Um, shout out to everyone in uh, Finland that listens. You know who you are. <laughs> um, a I, lot of you out there. <laughs> oh, and I would like to start off with a new segment. Uh-oh. I, I'm going to call it Ryan's Random Facts. Okay, I appreciate this. Now, Owen, are you familiar with two-time Oscar winner Michael Caine? Yes. Now... I watched a, a little indie movie last night called uh, Cars 2. Oh, is, he's the spy car, Would right? you be surprised if I told you that two-time Oscar winner is in car, Michael yeah, Caine is in Cars 2? Do you want to guess right? what his name is? I forget his name. I'm not going to lie to you. I watched it like two months ago. <laughs> two-time Oscar winner Michael Caine played the character Finn McMissile. Yeah, that's it. Yep. In Cars 2. Dude, it's a great movie. Toe Mater. I like how they were like, okay, it was a huge success. People like Tomater in the first Cars, right? Now let's, let's take Lightning entire- McQueen out of the yeah. entirety of the second movie. Let's take an entire movie and focus around Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> Whoops. Was that a two o'clock alarm? That's on me, folks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, great movie. Was there a Cars 3? Something tells me there was a Cars 3. I think there 3. is. I haven't seen it. Uh, I've definitely seen it. Give me, I, I'm halfway through this podcast if i just start talking about cars 3 it's because i remembered so (laughs) (laughs) okay um but yeah so today at least on my behalf we're talking about some crazy i'm talking about crazy like airline jackings i don't know what you're specifically talking about i think the theme the theme for this episode is just heists okay all right also i don't know why but my headphone cable dangling on your leg is giving me anxiety if you want to go ahead and move that to put it on the candle just anywhere where it's not on the inside of your thigh is ideal. <laughs> Thank you. Not for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think I lead episode eight. Oh, yeah, it's episode eight. I feel like I'm going to ask you every week. Yeah. So, anyways, all right, so I'm talking about the infamous D.B. Cooper. Now, do you know anything besides the picture I sent you the other night about D.B. Cooper? Now, I purposely did not look at the picture you sent me last night. However... In the research for my story, I found a DB Cooper pop up. A picture. I, f- I was looking at some videos on YouTube, and I uh, the thumbnail of a related video was that it was a plane and a man skydiving, and the title was something about DB DB Cooper. So that's DB Cooper in a nutshell. All right, that's it. That's my story. Famous skydiver. <laughs> Um, all right, so D.B. Cooper. So it's the eve of Thanksgiving. It's November 24th, 1971, and we are in Portland International Airport in Portland, Oregon. Okay. So um, Northwest Orient Flight 305 is scheduled to depart at 2.50 p.m. for a short 30-minute flight to Seattle, Washington. Okay, so um, like a little Airbus-type situation? Yeah, so it's a Boeing 727, quick little flight, 30 minutes. Literally one state to the other that border each other. Like, have you ever flown either, like, Boston to Washington, D.C., or, like, San Diego to Los Angeles? I did uh, Boston to New York City 
and it was 40 minutes and the second we got to like 33,000 feet we just started going down again yeah yeah like you don't even get to cruising altitude yeah no i think i got like i don't think i got any snacks maybe a soda <laughs> yeah um so yeah uh november 24th 1971 uh flight 305 is uh going from portland to seattle um, a man by the name of Dan Cooper boards flight 305 and takes his seat 18C in the back of the airplane. Dan B. Cooper? Dan Cooper. We'll, oh. We'll talk about D.B. Cooper more. Okay. But this is Dan Cooper. Okay. Not to be confused with D.B. Cooper, who, spoiler alert, are the same people. That's what kind of what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll talk more about why it's called D.B. Cooper and not Dan Cooper. Um, so prior to departure, he orders a bourbon and Coke. Okay, naturally. That's sits, what I get on planes. Sits down in his black business suit, black necktie, and drinks a bourbon and Coke. Just a chill dude smoking butts in the back of an airplane. Oh, yeah, it's you were allowed to do that back then. <laughs> yep. Um, did you know, quick sidebar, did you know that they had, like, like they trained uh, flight attendants on how to put out fires? Like, on an airplane? Back then, because... Like with a fire extinguisher? Yeah, and, like, how to remove certain wall panels in case someone's cigarette started a fire on the inside of the wall, and you had to rip it off. It is wild to me that you could smoke on an airplane. doesn't seem safe. Like, I understand it was, like, part of the culture, but... Yeah, that's true. It's a little different when you're on a freaking airplane. I think there's... Especially when there's, like, a two-year-old kid sitting across from you. <laughs> it's good for your lungs, kid. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so he's sitting in the back of the airplane, smoking butts, drinking bourbon and Coke, keeping to himself. Um, across the aisle from him, so I think he's on the left side of the plane. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Across the aisle from him is uh, the stewardess seat. So you know how they like kind of sit backwards sometimes? Or like and, sideways or whatever? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So across from him is the flight attendant. Okay. Um, so the flight attendant's name is Florence Schaffner. Um, and like I said, um, she is sitting across from Dan Cooper. So, the flight, uh, shortly after departure, around 3.05 p.m., Cooper hands a small handwritten note to Miss Florence Schaffner. Now, is, being, it, a, is it a love letter? You know, so, how, like, check box so, yes so or no? That's what she thought, because, you know, being a flight attendant, and I guess, you know, all the stereotypes are true, maybe. She just thought he was handing him, or he was, she was being handed his number, so she just threw it in her purse without looking at it. And then, like, very awkwardly, Mr. Cooper had to, like, lean across and be like, you might want to read that. I have a bomb. And she was just like, shit. And, like, reached <laughs> back into her purse and grabbed the note. Um, so Florence, being a little ballsy, was like, you know what? I don't believe you. Show me the bomb. And he was like, all right, come over here. And, like, grabbed a suitcase from underneath him, opened the suitcase. And it is described by Miss Florence that she, what she could see um, was eight red cylinders four on top of four attached to red wires leading to a large cylindrical battery now one time i brought i bought my brother um a pack of hot sauce that was um the bomb it was uh it was packaged in such a way to look like a bunch of sticks of dynamite was that what he had in his suitcase no oh honestly it's not ever confirmed if it was a real bomb okay so he could have just had like sticks of like freaking toothpaste for all i know painted red oh like in um die hard three when it's <sighs> that one bomb is just maple syrup i mean i i've seen it it's just <laughs> been a very long time is that when um when bruce willis still had hair or was he bald in die hard three he was bald in die hard 3, i think he was bald in yeah. die hard three um 
So she got a quick peek, saw eight red cylinders leading to what she described as a cylindrical battery. So obviously shocked by what she saw, she was left speechless. And before she could say anything else to Cooper, he told her his demands. Quote, negotiable American currency of $200,000, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft. Unquote. What's negotiable currency? Is that like bonds or something? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I think... I think he more just meant, like, untraceable. Okay. Or, you know, like, no die packs or something. Okay. I don't know. Why did he need four parachutes? Uh, so, I'll get to that. It was basically just... So, he wanted two main and then two reserve parachutes. So, I guess he wanted to, like, check them out and figure out which ones he liked better. He wanted options, oh, essentially. Okay. You know, he likes to shop around. Exactly. Um, so, $200,000 in 1971 is roughly estimated to be $1,260,000 in today's time. Okay. So, pretty large amount of money impressive um so florence slowly walked away from cooper to inform the pilots of their new flight plan um so the pilot was william a scott who served in world war ii as an army air force pilot and then their co-pilot was william j ratatak who served in the u.s air force during korea and vietnam a couple of bills a couple of like guys you probably didn't want to like you know say there was a bomb on their plane well i mean i don't know about this time period but i know like in the 60s and i don't know how strict it is when this happened but in like the 60s like planes would get hijacked all the time Mm -hmm. and it was basically just people being like i want to go to cuba take me to cuba i have a gun and then the pilots would just be like all right whatever i won't go to cuba (laughs) so Um, i don't know how how strict they are in this time period all right so um the captain william scott uh then relayed the demands to Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, who immediately informed local and federal law enforcement. Naturally. Um, good move, rather than just being like, yeah, you're clear to land. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that warrants a heads up. Yeah. Um, so, Scott informed all 35 passengers that their landing would be delayed due to, quote, minor mechanical difficulties. Okay, so rather not to alarm people. Rather than being like, hey, the guy sitting in 18C has a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cool day in Seattle. Uh, weather's uh, 68 degrees Fahrenheit, a little sunny, and by the way, there's a bomb on board. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this information uh, was then relayed to um, the Northwest Orient president, Donald Nyrop, who approved the payment for ransom. So essentially he was the ones who were like, all right, we'll pay. Um Basically, he was just like, look, I don't want a plane blowing up with, like, my crew and 35 passengers. I think also the, like, FAA yeah. will, like, yeah. pay him back for that, I think. Yeah. Um, so, hopefully alarming to some passengers, their scheduled 30-minute flight would then circle around Seattle Airport for two hours. So, if you if you hear that you have mechanical issues and the pilot's just flying around in circles, I'd probably be like, this doesn't seem ideal. Yeah, because usually it's like there's a problem at the... We're landing. Yeah, at the plane, like at the airport, yeah. so you have to circle. Yeah. Not but like, like... Hey, there's a problem with the plane, I'm going to be circling for two hours. <laughs> yeah. Test it out. Um, so, Tina McLow, a flight attendant also on 305, later described Cooper as calm, polite, and well-spoken. She even recalls Cooper naming areas of Washington as they circled for two hours. So, he kind of gave himself up, showed that he is very familiar with the area. Like, he was like, oh, look, it's Seattle. And then he was, like, naming mountains and stuff that were, like, pretty insignificant. So. So he's a local. He was a lo- he's a local. Yeah. Um, she also recalls that, quote, he wasn't nervous. 
Um, he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. He ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid drinks on a tab. He even attempted to give Mucklow extra change. Oh, wow. I mean, I'd, you know, give someone a better tip if I knew I was getting a million dollars. Yeah, and also that I just put them through hell. (laughs) Yeah. Um, He also offered to buy the whole flight crew dinner during their stop in seattle (laughs) what a a nice guy he was you know a genuine guy he's like you know i'm coming into like over a million dollars i might as well spend like 60 bucks too bad i just have to threaten all of your lives to do it (laughs) with a bomb yeah um so local and federal agency uh mainly the fbi were able to come across two hundred thousand dollars for parachutes and were able to get a fuel truck obviously at an airport that has fuel trucks okay um you may be wondering Two hours might seem like a long time, but I feel like two hours is a pretty short amount of time to come across $200,000. Like, I, I don't think it's just sitting in, like, an FBI vault in the basement. But like, also, like, does the Seattle police just have parachutes kicking around? So, I'll tell you where they got the parachutes. But, so, what they they got the money from se- several Seattle-area banks. Uh, it was 10,000 10, unmarked $20 bills. Most were serial numbers beginning with the letter L, indicating that they came from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco naturally and most of these bills were 1963 or 1969 series bills and rather than like just giving him these bills without any knowledge they took pictures of every single bill of all ten thousand. Oh, and they did that in two hours yeah that's kind of impressive um so while the fbi was doing this they were like hey seattle do you want to try to figure out how to get like parachutes so there is a nearby air force base uh on the outskirts of seattle called mccord air force base so naturally, they went there. McCord gave them four parachutes, two main, two reserves. Okay. Um, these were actually denied by Cooper when they landed because he wanted civilian-style parachutes because their ripcords are able to steer the parachute uh, for civilian style. Meanwhile, the military ones, they just open up and you just fall gracefully. Okay. So he wanted to be able to steer himself. Naturally. So um, Seattle Police Department went to a local skydiving airstrip <laughs> and was like, hey, I need to commandeer four parachutes. <laughs> And then just drove away. Dude, that's the strangest request. Yeah. I don't know what I would do if, like, three cop cars pulled up and they're like, dude, we need four parachutes. We're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you guys planning something? <laughs> um, so they were able to acquire everything in under or roughly two hours while still being able to track all the money. They knew every single dollar bill that they were giving this guy. Um, at 5.24 p.m., air traffic control contacted Flight 305 to inform the pilots that Cooper's demands were met. At 5.39 p.m., Flight 305 landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Once landed, Cooper informed the pilot to approach a well-lit area and for the passengers to close all shades on the windows. Dude didn't want to get sniped. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. Kind of smart. Um, so, now at the time, the police were trying to figure out who's going to give him the money and the parachutes. They didn't want, like, a officer going because, like, you know... He'd probably freak out. I would probably freak out if I'm doing this and I see people in uniforms approach me. Yeah. So the Northwest Orient Seattle Division Manager approached the aircraft in plain clothes, holding a duffel bag and parachutes. Wait, why wouldn't they just put an officer in plain clothes? Yeah, I feel like I wouldn't put this poor guy at risk who's just like, look, I'm just a manager. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, there's like 60 armed cops with like more training than a manager. And also they get paid to get shot at. Yeah. I'm yeah. just a freaking manager. I'm just a manager of an airline that just happened to get hijacked. So they had him approach the aircraft, give the $200,000 and the civilian parachutes to Cooper. Once Cooper had his hands on the demand, he ordered all passengers um, to leave the plane, but he kept the flight crew. Yeah. So 
35 passengers left. He kept left, and then he kept the six flight crew, including the two pilots. So there were like six people in total, or seven if you count Cooper. You know, less chance of a revolt. Exactly. So, what was his plans now? He had his demands. The airplane was filled. Where do you think he's going to go? Tahiti. A little too far. <laughs> Mexico City. Yeah, okay. So, he, he told the, the pilots before they left it off. He was like, hey, uh, we're going to Mexico City. And they were like, even on a full tank of gas, we have a thousand mile range. Like, that's not going to get you anywhere near Mexico City. So, they figured out an air plan with, or a flight plan with, the air traffic control to land in Reno, Nevada to refuel. And then from Reno, they would be able to make it to Mexico City. Okay. So the flight took off at 7.40 p.m. And um, during the flight, Cooper ordered all six people, or excuse me, five people. I think I, I think I meant six. Either way, he ordered everyone that wasn't him into the cockpit. Okay. Yeah, that's um, smart. Keep them in check. Unknown to Cooper or anyone probably the pilots knew because i would probably want to tell my pilots if i was air traffic control that there were two freaking like uh what are they f-106 fighter jets gonna be tailing you (laughs) (laughs) so because there's an air force base right next to the airport i think someone in the fbi probably just went next door and was like hey i know you we didn't take your parachutes but can i like borrow two freaking (laughs) scramble the jets yeah so it literally i wrote they scrambled two f-106 fighter jets um, one flew on top of the aircraft and one flew below the aircraft. Yeah, so that he can't see them? Yeah. Okay. Smart. So, like, genius. Um, so, like I said, Cooper ordered everyone into the front of um, the, the cockpit, and he was the only one allowed to walk through the, the flight. At roughly 8 p.m., um, excuse me, he ordered everyone in, and then at roughly 8 p.m., the crew, the crew noticed a subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. So, Cooper, being the only one in the back, opened the back door of the airplane. So, this airplane's a little weird, because people used to board just, like, from the planes, right? Yeah, they just so like, like, a big set of stairs. Remember that airport map in Call of Duty in COD 2, or, uh, Modern Warfare 2 airport? Yes. You remember that plane that was on the tarmac, and you could... Didn't have two levels or something? Well, you could get on the plane from the back of it. Yeah. That's what this plane had. It had a big door in the back. Okay. So, Cooper opened that. And everyone was stuck inside, so they didn't. They had no idea what Cooper was doing. The pilots could just tell that the airplane was getting like really, really unstable because okay. there is now this massive door open as they're flying. Um, I forgot to mention he also ordered the pilots to fly as low as legally possible, which is ten thousand feet, and as slow as possible without stalling the airplane. Okay. So all of this mixed together is parachutes. You can pretty much guess what happened, right? So they were flying to Reno, Nevada, and then he jumped out halfway through. Correct. Okay. So, like, uh, well, no, I wouldn't say halfway through. So they lifted off. Um, when when was it? They lifted off at seven forty, and at eight p.m. they noticed that things were acting weird with the plane. So he's so probably he, still not that far from Seattle then. Yeah. So he gave it like twenty minutes. Um. So since everyone was ordered into the cockpit, no one went to see what was going on. So when the flight landed at ten fifteen p.m., um, that's when everyone knew that Cooper was gone. Literally, every single agency in all of Nevada stormed the airplane. And everyone was just like, yeah, Cooper's gone. That's kind of smart, though. Yeah. That's so sick. Genius, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so after an armed search, uh, it was determined by the FBI, because the FBI obviously needed to be the ones to be like, yeah, he's not there. I'm sure there was a sheriff being like, no, he's not there, guys. And they're like, get the hell I'm out sure of the way. I'm sure the flight attendant probably poked her head out. I was like, yeah, I don't see him. Yeah. And then like FBI's like, we'll do a sweep. <laughs> we got this lady. <laughs> um, so during the initial investigation, the FBI found 66 unidentified fingerprints, as well as Cooper's tie and his tie clip. 
Okay. So I'm thinking real James Bond. He took his tie off before he just jumped out of an airplane. Yeah, right? Um, So the 66 identified fingerprints. um, Obviously, they took all the passengers and the flight crew and fingerprinted them. Okay. And then found that there were 66 that don't match any of the people. Obviously, it could have been a number of people because there's mechanics and probably other flight crews and stuff. Um, But they found 66 that didn't match anyone that they... um, were they all the same print or, like, from multiple people? It didn't say. All okay. I said was 66 unidentified. Okay. Um, so, one main suspect in the case was none other than Seattle man D.B. Cooper, who at the time had a minor criminal record within Seattle. Oh, so, okay. So, he was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long rushed to meet... Rushing to meet an imminent deadline confused the eliminated suspect's name with a pseudonym used by the hijacker, thus creating the famous name D.B. Cooper. Wait, so uh, it was because of a, a reporter? Yep. Was like, oh, this guy's name is D.B. Cooper. Well, so a reporter heard that they were investigating a man named D.B. Cooper for the hijacking. And then before like wanting to make sure that it, there was any legitimacy to it, the police were like, no, he's clean. Like he didn't do it. And then they released on the news saying it's DB Cooper is being investigated. And then all the other news agencies across the nation picked it up. So then everyone knew him as DB Cooper, even though it was Dan Cooper and this poor DB Cooper guy was just chilling in Seattle. Did DB Cooper do it? No, he did not. Oh. He was found not guilty. It was like, like they he had just an alibi they were looking for people with the last name cooper gotcha. in seattle and portland area and they're like oh db cooper it starts with a d same last name could he have done it and then they ruled him out immediately but the news anchors were like nah we're rolling with it <laughs> so that's how everyone today knows it as db cooper so did they ever catch dan cooper we'll get there okay we'll get there that's normally you're saying to me but yeah um so it was pretty hard to find a precise search area Considering it, it, it's estimated that he jumped out around between like 8 p.m. and 8.10 p.m. But then again, he could have just had the thing open the entire time and jumped out right at the end. We, we don't know when he jumped out, right? Yeah, it would probably take me like a minute or two of staring out the door to be like, all right, Ryan, you got this. Yeah, and um, you might be thinking, did the Air Force pilots see anything? Well, apparently it was a really dark night. And it was also like not the best weather. So there was a bunch of cloud cover. So it was even hard for the jets that were, like, right below the aircraft to see the aircraft. Well, also, if you just think about the positioning of the aircraft, like, the the bottom plane is probably somewhere towards the middle or the front of the commercial plane. Yeah, yeah. Because of, like, jet wash or whatever. Yep. So, and if he jumped out of the back, he just might not have seen him. Imagine being Dan Cooper jumping out and be like, oh, shit, those are fighter jets. (laughs) (laughs) Is that an (laughs) F-22? Yeah. Um... So it was pretty hard for the FBI to establish an initial initial search area just due to the magnitude of where he could have been. Yeah. Um, there was obviously a lot of factors into it. It was, you know, wind speed at the time, how high the plane was, how fast the plane was going, when exactly he jumped out, how late did he pull the ripcord. He can steer the ripcord, so just because he pulled it then doesn't mean he's going to fall straight. He could... So the, the search area is pretty much anywhere from Seattle to Reno. Correct. Yikes. Doesn't sound like it's going to be pretty possible to find him. So, initial explorations placed Cooper's landing zone within an area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, uh, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin. That's where they just started. They were like, we don't know where else to freaking start. Um, 
FBI agents and sheriff deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountainous wilderness on foot and by helicopter. They also conducted door-to-door searches of local farmhouses and residents in the area. They didn't have a picture of Dan Cooper. They just had a description. So they had a description. Uh, I do have a description in here. I don't know why I put it so much later in my story, but I do have a description. Okay. Um, So I'll talk about um, their description because it's from mainly that Florence, the initial flight attendant. Yeah, because they don't have cameras in the airports. They don't have cameras. Oh, I also meant to mention something. Once he sent Florence into the cabin to give her his demands, when she came back, he was just wearing like, (laughs) he was just wearing dark sunglasses. Like, he wasn't wearing them the entire time. He sat right next to her. It was like, hey, go tell the co-pilot that I have a bomb. And then she came back, and he was just sitting there, like, smoking a cigarette with glasses on. Dude, he just, she goes away, and he just puts on his sunglasses and goes, cry mode activated. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, the FBI were doing helicopter foot searches, driving around the area, door-to-door searches. Um, but they also had a coordinated aerial search with fixed-wing aircraft and helicopters from the Oregon Army National Guard uh, along the entire flight path from Seattle to Reno. Nothing was found because you think anything would be found? No. uh, So they waited until the spring of uh, 1972 after the, you know, the winter because it's probably not very easy to search in the winter. Probably not. So they waited to do more extensive searching in um, early 1972. A team of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis along with Air Force personnel... National Guardsmen and civilian volunteers conducted another thorough ground search um, of the Washington, Oregon, Idaho, all that, whatever's there. And let me guess, they found nothing. They didn't find anything. Um, So they conducted it for 18 days uh, and an additional 18 days in in April. So they conducted it 18 days in March, 18 days in April. Came up with nothing, but something was found. Was it the parachute? During the search, two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. This is in Washington. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, it was later identified to be the remains of a teenage girl who was abducted and murdered several weeks before. Yikes. So, not Cooper. (laughs) Not Cooper, but they figured something else out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good at least, I guess. Um, You're telling me they didn't find a skeleton with wearing sunglasses and a cigarette butt in its skeletal fingers with... An empty bourbon and coke and a parachute next to it. Can you imagine you like look up in a tree and there's a skeleton with a parachute on and sunglasses? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was the only thing they found was a teenage girl who was abducted a couple weeks prior and killed. Hey, at least they found out what happened to her. Imagine your murder gets throttled because some dude jumped out of a freaking <laughs> freaking passenger jet, <laughs> and you're like, dude, what's the like? What are the odds? <laughs> um, so ultimately, the research never recovered anything and it is arguably the most extensive and intensive in u.s history um yeah it didn't uncover anything so on july 8th 2016 the fbi fbi announced that it was suspending activity investigation uh, excuse me suspended active investigation on the cooper the cooper case um but local agencies like the police the sheriff in the area are only taking like actual legitimate evidence Okay. They uh, they got a d- bunch of people being like, "Oh, my brother on his deathbed said he was DB Cooper." Like they're not taking that stuff anymore. They want like hard evidence. Yeah. Uh, the FBI is just like, "Yeah, we're not dealing with it anymore." Um, but the FBI's description of DB Cooper is a white male, five foot ten inches, one hundred eighty pounds or eighty two kilograms for those for overseas those folks, folks in Finland. <laughs> hey, and brown eyes. Okay. Um. So. 
1971 was a very long time ago. Oh, real quick. If I was 100 pounds skinnier, I would fit his description. Just going to say that. Did you just call yourself 280? Oh, no. If I was four, <laughs> if I was 40 pounds skinnier. Yeah, there you go. Good save. <laughs> um, so, 1971 was a very long time ago. So, you're wondering, did they ever find anything? Did they ever have a real suspect that they were, like, you know, trying to pin this on? I was wondering that, Owen. Um, Believe it or not. They did. I kind of hope they had at least some clue. I understand you're th- you're talking about a dude that just, like, disappeared literally in- into thin air. It's kind of wild. Um, so the most compelling evidence ever found was on Sunday, February 10th, 1980, when eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina. It's oh, about, Tina Beach? Yeah, Tina Beach. It's about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. I don't know why I said it like that. I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah, so it's near Vancouver, Washington. Okay. Uh, he uncovered three packets of ransom cash while he was raking the beach to make way for his campfire. Okay. Um, the bills were disintegrated but still bundled in rubber bands. FBI techs confirmed that the money was indeed part of the ransom. Why'd he dump it then? Could have fallen out when he jumped. We have no idea. No, that's true. We have How no... much was it? Um, three it, bundles so said? it it didn't say um uh, i read more into it and i don't know why i didn't put it down but uh, since the kid found it the fbi split half of it with the kid and then like three years ago the grown-up kid sold it for like thirty six thousand dollars or something like that well, that's kind of sweet so it's pretty cool it is still the only like part of the ransom money ever found interesting yeah um, I just still think it's wild that they like split it with an eight year old <laughs> <laughs> kind of lawyer did that kid have. <laughs> um, so between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed over a thousand quote, serious suspects. Um, many included, um, deathbed confessions, people trying to snitch on their family members, that kind of thing. Um, but they only could really pin it on one man, Kenneth Peterson Christensen. Okay. Now Kenneth. Um, enlisted in the army in 1944 and was a trained paratrooper. Uh-oh. The war had ended by the time he was deployed in 1945, but he made occasional training jumps while stationed in, in Japan with occupation forces in the na- late 1940s, so after the war. Okay. Um, after leaving the army, he joined Northwest Orient, the same airline that D.B. Cooper hijacked. So is there only evidence that this guy knows how to parachute and so, he works well, uh, on the planes? Uh, I'll, I'll uh, talk more about it but he joined northwest orient as a mechanic in 1954 um in the south pacific and subsequently became a flight attendant and then a purser based in seattle um christensen was 45 years old at the time of the hijacking but he was shorter at 58 and cooper was described at 510 and thinner 150 pounds cooper was described at 180 okay so there are a little bit of differences um i mean that could just be the flight attendant like it's a, yeah, giving exactly. a poor description yeah considering i'd be a little a little razzled a little shaken you <laughs> yeah know? um so the similarities are as follows um he had an extreme fondness for bourbon Same. so bourbon was his favorite drink he was he was left-handed and evidence um evidence photos of cooper's black tie show that the tie clip was tied left-handed Ooh. That's the only evidence that he was a lefty, but this guy was a lefty, liked bourbon, was a trained paratrooper, and worked for the same company. But they never arrested him for this, right? Uh, no. So, also another coincidence. So, his sister in, like, the 2000s was watching, like, you know, like, FBI's Most Wanted, one of those yeah. TV shows, and was like, look, this guy looks just like my brother, the description. 
Like, I'm going to go tell the FBI. And they just kept being like, shut up. <laughs> and then she just kept telling them. So that eventually they were like, all right, lady, we'll look into it. And then she was like, oh, yeah, by the way, my brother died in, like, 1994 from cancer. Why even bring it up? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but also it is reported by uh, his sister that a couple months after the hijacking, he bought a brand new house with cash. Now, upon his passing, in the basement of this house um, – Sorry, I just lost my spot. So in the basement of this house after his passing when his family was looking through, family members discovered gold coins, valuable stamp collection, along with $200,000 in bank accounts. Did the um, did they ever give that to the FBI? Uh, I don't know if it was ever turned over um, because he died in 94 and then it didn't come out until like I think the late 90s or the early 2000s when his sister kept trying to snitch on him. I'm just wondering if those bills were ever found. So I know no other evidence from the bills have been found. Okay. So he, if this was this guy, I'd probably buy the house with cash. Buy like, you know, it's also the seventies, so buying stuff with cash isn't suspicious. Or you could just, how much money was it? Uh, two hundred thousand dollars he got. So you could just go to a bank and go, hey, can I get two hundred thousand in ones? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then, then like hey, switch the out all your cash. Yeah. Um. So while never formally charged, Kenneth Peterson Christensen is regarded as the prime suspect in the D.B. Cooper case. But never convicted. Never convicted, no, because you can't convict a dead person. Yeah. Also, they closed the case in 2016. They're not looking into it anymore because it was in 70, so that's like 50 years ago. That's kind of wild. So, yeah. No one ever knows what happened to D.B. Cooper. No one knows who D.B. Cooper is. No one even knows if he, like, he could have, like, jumped out of the airplane and, like, knocked his head coming out and just, like, died because he never deployed his parachute. Like, no one knows what could have happened to him. Yeah, do you think that if you weren't a trained parachutist, you would have the wherewithal to jump out of a, a, a like a giant plane, and like land safely? I wouldn't do well. Also, this was in November in or uh, Washington. Oh, so then you had to like trek through the wilderness. Yeah, in November in which, the snow. I can't, yeah, exactly. With like a massive bag of cash. Yeah. So, I, I think the main, at least my belief in this, is that he probably just died. You know, he either died from the wilderness, he died because he didn't deploy his parachute, or he died because he deployed his parachute and then it, like, threw him into a tree or something. Like, I don't know. I kind of buy the fact that it's that guy that... What's it could his be. name? Yeah. Um, Kenneth Peterson? Or yeah. Kenneth Peterson Christensen or something like that. I kind of... I could buy that. I, I Also, but, like, it's also, what did I say, 8 p.m. in November, so it's pitch black. You jump out of a plane in just darkness, and then you just attempt to steer your way into, like... Mount St. Helens. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a trained parachutist. He was. So he's probably done cooler stuff. That means he can see in pitch black. Yeah. So Naturally. It, yeah, exactly. Um, so it does make sense that it would be him, considering his training, that he worked for the same exact company that was hijacked, Yeah. that he bought a house a couple months after, and then his family found a whole bunch of loot in his basement when he died. Oh, also I meant to mention, on his deathbed, he was talking to his brother, Lyle, and Lyle, Lyle. reported that... Kenneth was like, Lyle, I gotta tell you something. And then he was like, yeah, what's up, buddy? And he was like, never mind, I can't. And then died. <laughs> uh, hey, that just fits the bill more for yeah. me, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of D.B. Cooper, or otherwise known as Dan Cooper. That's kind of wild. I liked that. Yeah, really cool story. Um, I just want to quickly mention, um, this isn't related to either of our stories, but... Uh, Ooh, uh, Cars 3? <laughs> no, uh, well, sort of. Ostberg just took the lead over Elfin Evans in the rally championship. Oh, rally. Yeah. More of an F1 guy myself. Well, just figured I'd mention it. Still trying to get into Formula E, but he's, it's just electric, so. 
It's electric. Dun, 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 dun. All time favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> Owen, what do you know about the heist of the century? Ocean's Eleven? No. Oh, oh, you mean Ocean's Eight or whatever that new one was. Oh, the lady one? Yeah. I've never seen it. Yeah. I heard it was bad. Though. I heard it was really bad. Anyways, continue. The heist of the century, otherwise known as the Antwerp Diamond Center heist. Oh, I have heard of this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. I know who, yeah, I actually know a good amount about this. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, go, go. Antwerp, Belgium. Yep. Uh, there is a place in Antwerp, Belgium called the Antwerp Diamond Center. It's sort of like the Diamond District in New York City. It's one of the largest concentrations of wealth in the world, and roughly 80% of the world's raw diamonds pass through this location. Okay. So, pretty freaking rich spot. So, the facility is used by dealers as both a storefront to sell their diamonds as well as a vault to store their diamonds. So, basically, there are like a bunch of shops up top where you can go buy diamonds, and then at night, they put all the diamonds downstairs in a vault. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't leave them out. Well, yeah, I mean, you can lock the front door, but it's not as safe <laughs> as a vault. You ever played that GTA heist, the very first heist? Just because the door is locked. Very true. Continue. <sighs> Didn't they recruit an old guy for this? They recruit. All right, go. Yeah, go. Just tell your story. So, this place uh, has a dedicated police force provided by the Belgian Belgian government and state-of-the-art security measures, Owen. Jesus. So, how did a crew of five steal nearly $100 million worth of diamonds? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so, the year is 2000, and the man is named Leonardo Notabartalo. Uh, is he Italian? <laughs> he's very, very Italian. Uh, Leonardo decided to rent a store uh, in the Diamond Center. Okay, that makes sense. So he like... What kind of store? A diamond store, oh. believe it or not. Oh. So he actually runs like a semi-successful diamond business. Yeah, he but he just wanted more. <laughs> it's all a front just so that he can case the joint. So Genius. <laughs> uh, Leonardo would keep up this act for three years only to learn the ins and outs of the facility that is dedication now the diamond district has a strict rule on no photography makes sense but Leonardo is a clever guy he fashioned a tiny little camera and put it in the tip of a pen that this was, was 2002 right yeah wow that would stick out of his shirt pocket Genius. so that he could walk around taking pictures all the time what would he like click the pen down to take the picture I think it was just going. Oh, okay. I think it was like a video camera. So over the course of his time at the Diamond Center, Leonardo would learn everything there is to know about the place. So while posing as an Italian diamond merchant, which I don't know why that's just the funniest funniest thing I've ever heard. Uh, my name is Leonardo. Would you like to buy a diamond? I mean, but he is Italian, so. <laughs> yeah. It's probably easier than posing as a Belgian diamond merchant if you're Italian. That's fair. Yeah. So oh, while you pose- have a great <laughs> Italian accent, though, and we heard your Russian accent last year, so My you can pose one as needs- anyone. Yeah, I'm a chameleon. <laughs> you know, I'm a freaking master of disguise over here. Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so while posing as an Italian diamond merchant, Leonardo gained access to the vault by renting an office in the Diamond Center. You would you would also rent uh, a place in the vault. Every morning, Leonardo would retrieve would retrieve his diamonds from the vault, and every evening he would put the diamonds back in the vault. So guys in the vault twice a day. Question for you. With this front, did he ever actually like make a living? Yeah, he was thing? like semi-successful. Oh, you did say that. Yeah, and you didn't pay attention. No, I just feel like 
you know, like your your plan for three years is to stake it out, and then maybe year two you're like, wait, I'm actually doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> Should I'm, I just stay legit? I'm just like Ben Baller. I could probably just keep oh, this going. God. Ended well. Um, so Leonardo became intimately familiar with the security systems as well. First obstacle, guards and cameras everywhere. Next, the vault. It's two stories underground and has an external security camera recording 24-7. But if you manage to get past the guards and the vault, can you just pick the lock? Wrong. It's a freaking combination dial with 100 million possibilities. Yikes. Is it like anti-drillable too? And there's a key that has to be put in as well. And it's apparently a very specific shape key that like can't be recreated and you can't pick the lock. So, okay. Well... We can't crack the code. We can't, uh, like, we don't have the key. Can we just drill the door? No. Because the door is three tons of solid steel Yikes. that can withstand drilling for up to 12 hours. How thick is it? I don't know. Oh. It's three tons. I mean, either way. Three tons thick. Tw- <laughs> Same. <laughs> <laughs> um, but even if you had 12 hours to drill it, there's a seismic sensor that will set off uh, alarms yes, if it detects that. drilling. If it detects, yep, I remember that. So let's say you somehow manage uh, those obstacles, you yeah. know, the door, the, the guards, the cameras. Um, there's also a big magnet that will trip an alarm and a steel grate with another lock on the inside. Another camera recording 24-7, a light meter that will trigger an alarm if it measures light, Jesus. and a motion and temperature gauge that will set off if it detects anyone moving or the presence of human body heat. So it's pretty, it's nigh imp- impregnable. Pretty sure they said that about Helm's Deep. <laughs> Just continue. <laughs> <laughs> so, much like Ocean's Eleven, Leonardo hired some guys and built a replica vault. So, Leonardo and his four compatriots would spend the next couple years running through the heist uh, until they were confident. They Do you could... know who he hired? We'll get there. Okay. Uh, they would spend the next couple years running through the heist until they were confident that they could get in and out without anyone being seen. And finally, on February 15th, 2003... They were ready. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the day before the heist, uh, like the night before, sort of, Okay. Um, Leonardo entered the vault like normal yep. to deposit his diamonds, um, but he brought a super high-tech spy tool with him, a can of hairspray. So, with the hairspray, and without anyone noticing, Leonardo sprayed a thin layer on the heat and motion sensor. Uh, this would allow them a brief window where it wouldn't detect anything. Okay. So, that night, the crew of five rented a car, drove to the Diamond Center, parked across the street, um, and this was all around midnight. Leonardo would stay in the car as the getaway driver. Uh, he was the mastermind, but he didn't actually want to do any of it? Yeah. I get it. <laughs> That's what I would do. Uh, so, the other four crossed the street into a back garden that bordered the back of the Diamond Center, and then retrieved a ladder they stored there earlier. They climbed up onto the balcony of the Diamond Center, um, but on the balcony was this, like, IR sensor. Okay. Uh, But the crew used a homemade IR shield to uh, block the sensor before they broke uh, a window to get inside. Fancy. Basically, they had this, like, big plate, this, like, big glass thing that reflected infrared, and they just put it up against it 
so it defeated <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so now remember uh now remember how i said that uh there were guards everywhere I was right say, is it guarded overnight as well the guards were so confident in the security of the vault that they just weren't there at night yikes they also planted on a saturday okay because saturday is shabbat so uh and like and then sunday the as ma- well right because like like Sunday's also the Christian, so then like no one's gonna go in on Sunday either, right? Well, like does it give them an extra day? It's or? more important because like the vast majority of employees at this center are Jewish. Careful, okay. So it's like gonna, <laughs> it's it's vastly reducing the chance that someone is like, oh, I forgot my car keys. Yeah, you know, because they can't go out because it's Shabbat. So, uh, the crew made their. There's a large saw going off um anyways the crew made their way down uh, to the vault covered the first camera with a with a black bag naturally uh next they dealt with a magnetic sensor they used a block of metal and with some tape on it they put the metal on the sensor unbolted the bolts uh that held the sensor to the wall and then slid it away from the vault door okay so essentially there's two there's like there's like a piece of metal on either side of the wall and um like they just like use the metal to slide it over okay so that they stay connected yep but and then they like tape it there and then it won't be sensed that it's yeah yeah so that makes sense um yeah next was combination lock remember that one with a hundred million different combinations yeah i mean i feel like you can break that in a couple hours <laughs> <laughs> well uh leonardo had been wearing a camera in the vault for three years. So he had the combination written down because he saw someone put it in. How often did they change the combinations? That I don't know, okay. but he was there like the day before. Yeah, so he should know it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Jeez. Does he have the key, though? The key. The key, you asked. The, the key. V- the very... Unique. Unique, impossible to fake key. Yeah. It was uh, hanging on a hook in an unlocked closet immediately next to the vault. <laughs> So, they just walked in and took it. So, I understand that you can still get, like, let's say they didn't do all this stuff with the cameras, right? And yeah. they just found a way to waltz in without breaking a window. So, some guy could just walk in, if he knew the code, knows where the key is, just grab it, get the stuff, and leave. But he'd be recorded the whole time, right? Yeah. Or would all the sensors go off because you're opening the door at 1 All the All the sensors would also go off. Okay, all right. But, yeah, the the key was just immediately next to the vault i mean i get there's a lot of steps to get into the vault but like one of the the literal key <laughs> steps to get in you should hide <laughs> yeah um so so they uh, put in the combination in the dialogues then put the key in and then they turned off all the lights because there's still a light sensor on the inside of the vault yep. so and the can of hairspray remind me will mask their heat is that correct yes okay um so they turn off the lights they open the the vault door and then there's another steel grate on the inside. Okay. So they pick that lock. And then uh, all they had left was the heat sensor, the motion sensor, and the light sensor. So the motion sensor already had the uh, the hairspray on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just to be safe, they also put like a styrofoam box over it. Because it's also like Smart. a heat sensor, like yeah. just in case. Um, and then they put some tape over the light sensor and a bag over the security camera. There you go. So, you know, really high-tech stuff. I know, right? A bag. Some tape. <laughs> and they did that all in total darkness. That's impressive. Well, they I was going to say, oh, it took them three years to f- figure out to put tape on a camera. But, like... <laughs> they, yeah, that's what they've been practicing for. Just, yeah. 
So the four men then uh, stuffed their bags with $100 million worth of diamond, gold, and uh, currencies from around the world. Fancy. Uh, they made their way out to Leonardo, who is still parked outside, and then they left the scene at around 5.30 a.m. Okay. And went on the lam. Did they get away with it, Owen? Uh, uh, no, because you know the guy who did it, and I also know the story. Well. But I'm going to guess no. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the only evidence they left behind, well, they didn't really leave any evidence, but they were in gloves the entire time. Okay. And the, uh, Leonardo was like, shoot, we got to burn these gloves. Makes sense. Like, cause they're, they're evidence that could link us back if, yeah. if they ever get found. So he's trying to, they're like driving. I forget where they were going, but they're trying to get out of there and they're, he's trying to find a place to pull off on the side of the road okay. to destroy the gloves. Start a casual fire. But according to Leonardo... One of his uh, crew members was like super paranoid. I get it. So he started. I would be. Yeah. I don't blame him. <laughs> so he started throwing random stuff out of the windows. Okay. Of the moving car. One of which was a half eaten salami sandwich that was later used as DNA evidence to link back to Leonardo. Jeez, really? So basically the cops were like, hey, we like think he went this way and we found a. Um, like yeah, a sandwich. Yeah. And, and that's why you don't eat after 11 p.m. You get the munchies too late at night. Yeah, it's going to lead to trouble. You know, at 3 a.m. McDonald's just hits different, you know? That's true. I wonder if he was just, like, stress eating in the car <laughs> while everyone else is doing this stuff. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they find the sandwich, and then they eventually link it to Leonardo. And they only arrest Leonardo. They never find the diamonds. Okay. But Leonardo spent 10 years in prison. Oh, that's not bad. But he refused to give up his crew members, even Good though they man. were the ones that got him in the clink. Yikes. So that's why I don't know the other four people. Gotcha. But do you want to know, Owen, the biggest theft of them all? Yes. Now, while in jail and in several interviews, um, Leonardo claimed that they only stole $20 million worth of jewels. Why? So that way he could walk off with the rest after jail? No. Because the biggest theft is insurance fraud. Oh, because it's his own jewels? The di- Well, no, the Diamond Center was insured. Yeah. So they claim that he stole $100 million worth of diamonds so that they would get a $100 million payout from the insurance company, meaning that they would make $80 million profit. Jesus. It's alleged, though. It's just according to Leonardo. Can you imagine being that insurance company? Just like, ah, come on, guys. It's like the one guy that, like, you know, you're an insurance adjuster or whatever it is when you go to the field and, like, check someone's car to make sure that they're not, like, lying about that they rear-ended someone. But your job is to just, like, check out, a, like, a bank heist, a jewel heist, and $80 million rides on your shoulders whether you say yes or no. I mean, what's the worst that could happen if you I say, say no yeah. and then you get, like, killed? <laughs> say yes and you get fired. Get some of that money. So, yeah. That's well, wild. Uh, I might have so to cut that of, one out. Yeah, you probably should. So 2003. <laughs> uh, 2003, is so that means that he's out of jail now for his 10 years later. Yep. What's he doing? I don't know. Didn't look it up. Probably. St- I mean, I feel like everyone would be watching him, so it would be hard for him to get any amount of the money back because he probably can't just live in, like, Fiji at this moment because I feel like someone would be like, Meh. Well, I mean, he didn't rat out his friends. So. Well, that's what I'm saying. So he gets out, then his buddy gives him, like, his cut, and then all of a sudden he has, like, $10 million again, and he and just like, got out Interpol of prison. And, like, Interpol is like, all right, Leonardo, yeah. what's going on yeah. here? How are you living in Fiji? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of the 
Antwerp. Antwerp. Bank heist. Bank heist. Well, jewel heist? Jewel heist. Either way, a lot of money was stolen. Interestingly enough, that is not the first time um, that a sandwich caused disaster. It's arguable that a sandwich caused World War One. Oh, yeah, and that's why he stopped at the food. And right? if you want to hear how yeah. a sandwich caused World War One, Tune in subs- next week? Tune in maybe next week, maybe in the future. I thought, I thought sure. you were linking that up. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, if you liked our stories, uh, make sure to check us out uh, on Instagram at what happened underscore pod. Uh, I'll be posting some pictures of uh, DB Cooper, maybe. Yep. And the Get Antwerp, nice shot. the Antwerp um, Diamond Heist as well. And we also have a Twitter uh, official underscore WHPC, all caps. Not really a whole lot happening on the Twitter, but <laughs> mainly our Instagram. Um, and hey, maybe uh, you like us a lot. Maybe you like us more than my own mother likes me, and you want to support us. Um, we have a Patreon. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash what happened underscore pod. You did not seem confident on that uh, that link. Like 90% sure that's it. <laughs> Type in what happened podcast. I'm sure something will pop up, right? Yeah, yeah. Also Anyways. Also, link tree on Insta and Twitter. Yeah. That'll get you there. But Anyways, yeah. tell a friend. Um, write us a review. Leave us five stars. Um, if I ever see you in person, I'll give you a kiss. Yo, shout out Canada, UK, Denmark, Finland sweden also i guess the u.s <laughs> you guys are cool too <laughs> all right uh see you next week on the what happened podcast i didn't like that what the ending no do you want to do it again no are you sure yeah you have time i'm good <laughs>